Father, we thank you so much. And, and your son taught us that we should begin by hallowing your name. And we do that. And we're grateful to you. We're grateful for your son. We're grateful that you bring us together today. And we're reminded that we worship you in freedom. Unlike so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. And we're grateful for that. And Father, we know in this room today there are many people who have had victories this past week things of joy in their life and things to celebrate and for that we're grateful. And Father, we know in this room today there are people who are broken hearted, who need you, who are desperate. But regardless of our circumstances today and regardless of our situation, Father, we need truth and we need to hear from your word and we need to know more about prayer. And Father, your scripture teaches us that when your children pray, our prayers are smelled in heaven as a sweet aroma and we thank you for that. And Father, now as our brother, as our pastor comes before you, whatever fear, whatever trepidation, and we know this man always comes here with fear and trepidation over preaching your word, remove that. Give him freedom, just as Paul asked for freedom to preach the gospel. Give him your words, Father. Bless him. Bless these words. And Father, use them so that we would learn more about you and that we would lead lives that bring honor and glory to your name. All these things, Father, we ask in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> this past Tuesday afternoon, I had the privilege of driving to Greenwood, South Carolina, to meet with a couple men who've really been in and out of my life, mostly in uh, my life since the uh, 1980s. Um, when I pastored a rural church in the northern part of Columbia County, a little community called Winfield, Georgia, uh, the man on, uh, on your left, as you look at the picture, is... Um, Archie Moore, a GPC, a Presbyterian pastor down in Greenwood Presbyterian Church. He's 71 years old, and we've been praying together for about 33 years each week. And uh, the guy next to him is Ted Kuhn. Um, Ted couldn't make as many prayer meetings as Archie and I did because he's a trauma room surgeon at the Medical College of Georgia and uh, was attending to all the great needs of the human body there, but he joined us for as often as we could. Uh, Ted's been married 48 years. Uh, uh, he and his wife, uh, Sharon, uh, served in Bangladesh as medical missionaries for eight years, and then he spent 17 years serving with the MTW, the medical arm of mission to the world. And these men have taught me more than anybody in my life the absolute reliance that a believer is to have on prayer. Archie, for all of the time that, that I knew him in Augusta, would open up his house every morning, every Tuesday morning at 5 o'clock and invite the whole church to come drop by for as long as they want to pray. Uh, his office is always open for prayer. And like I said, for 33 years, he's been hounding me on the telephone if I'm not in Greenwood. Uh, to, we need to pray together for uh, what's coming up at Hope Point. Ted... Um, uh, what an amazing doctor. He said that in his course of... Uh, treating people in trauma room, emergency room, and also in his life has taken 2,500 uh, students on medical mission trips. He said that in, in the course of his history in medicine, he's probably treated or overseen the treatment of 250,000 people. And he said before every person that he's ever treated, he looks at his hands and said, God, would your power flow through my hands that you would do far more in me than medicine can explain. And... Uh, even it was good to touch base with him this week. We hadn't got together in several years. And 
told me that he had retired from the, the formal practice of medicine. And I, I asked him, how did you know how to, this was the time? And he said, my wife and I, Sharon, went to Scotland for two weeks. And we walked 150 miles uh, over a period uh, of that time. And we prayed and asked God to make it clear to us. That was in 2018. And sure enough, they knew in 2019 it was the time to step aside. But these men pray about everything, and they've taught me what it means to obey the Scripture. Colossians 4, 2, devote your life to prayer. The word devote, interesting word. Uh, I misspelled it here in the Greek, but it's it's proskar tereo, which means something that is um, dedicated for a specific task. Devoted is a good translation, but dedicated is cool when you see how Jesus used it in Mark chapter 3. There was an occasion when he was teaching by the seashore, the crowds wanting to feel the power of God, hear the wisdom of God, begin to press closer and closer to him, that they were really going to drive him to the, to the Sea of Galilee. So he told his disciples, get me a boat that I can stand in so uh, they won't drive me into the ocean. Mark 3, 9, he told his disciples, have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding in. Interesting enough, that word ready, again, proskartoreo, is the same word that's used in Colossians chapter 4 to devote yourself to prayer. So Jesus looked at a boat, and out of all the boats that were on the Sea of Galilee that day, he said, I want that boat to be dedicated for my preaching. Set it apart. It's to be used for nothing else today but me. So when Jesus looks here at this church today, he doesn't look at all the lives of Spartanburg and say everybody else is to be praying because not everybody's a believer. But he looks at you and said, I want your life to be set apart for the purpose, devoted, dedicated prayer. You're his boat. And from your life, prayer is to be continually lifted up to him. He has a work to do in Spartanburg, and he's going to do it through people who are devoted. The early church took seriously this concept of being devoted to prayer. Acts 1, 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves, devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts 6.4, we, the leaders, will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So the most common characteristic of the early church in the book of Acts was their praying. Now let me tell you, devotion to prayer is going to look a little bit different in your life and mine and my life and yours. It's hard to say what devotion is, but it's easy to say what devotion isn't. Only praying at a time of crisis or over a meal or asking God to do a miracle in the parking lot and open up a space for you in front of the mall, that's probably not being devoted to prayer. So whatever devotion is, going to look different in each of our lives, but God knows the difference between somebody who's devoted to prayer and somebody who is not devoted to prayer. You might ask me why, again, this is probably my fourth series uh, since we begin the year on on prayer, and um, 
Why, why, why again? This is what I've discovered. In the Christian life, when we've gotten into a bad habit of relying on something other than God, it takes more than one week to chop that tree down. It's like you might be stirred today to pray, as you were last week, but all of a sudden you go out into the community and the weeds grow up, you get entangled, and all of a sudden that little boat that was supposed to be dedicated, that life that was dedicated to prayer, it got dedicated to a lot of other things. So it normally takes more than just one effort for us to remind ourselves of, of prayer is everything to God. The second reason I would, I would I'd preach on this again this week is, is, is really, to be honest with you, the building could, could become a problem. We love it. It's beautiful. Sound is almost perfect in here. You got a lot of hallelujahs from people who are no longer setting up chairs at 7 in the morning. But there can be a tendency to say, we're in the building and all is well. And I just want to plead with you to understand that despite a great building, baristas who make coffee, people who hold babies, group leaders who teach the Bible, lost people will remain separated from God. Blind people will not see the glory of God. Deaf people will not hear His voice if we're not a praying church. It won't happen. None of this will help change the human heart. So, this is what I'm praying for today. It's what I'm praying for. My preaching professor used to always say, write a one-word one word sentence of hope. I want my sermon to do this. Here's mine for the day. I want my sermon to produce a supernatural love, supernatural belief in your heart that you know prayer really matters. It really makes God happy, and it really does cause God to change things on earth. I want you to believe today, when Moses prayed, the Israelites were really spared from the wrath of God because he prayed. I want you to believe that when Joshua prayed, the sun really stopped moving in the sky so the battle could be won. And I want you to know when Jonah had been swallowed up by a well, he really prayed himself out of that sea creature's stomach. So the Bible is filled with people who believed that prayer really worked. And they defeated armies, they saved cities from destruction, and they saw lots of lives change because they prayed. We could say it this way, the sovereign God lays out his plans to bring millions of people into his eternal kingdom and then hangs the success of those plans on the prayers of his people. So somebody might read that and say, well, what if I don't pray? I guess, what, what, what will not happen? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take a little parenthesis here to tell you some things I don't understand. I don't really know what does and doesn't happen when you individually pray, except you get to live from now to the time that you see God as having lived in disobedience, not believing that prayer matters. 
So I don't really know what's going to happen and not happen by you choosing not to pray other than it's disobedience. I don't know how you live with that. We are loved and led by a prayer hearing God. I've been asked many times in my life another complex question. Does prayer change the mind of God? I don't think that's the right question. Here's why, here's why I say that. God's mind is perfectly wise and perfectly loving. I don't know why it would need changing. So I'm praying to a God whose mind is perfectly wise and perfectly loving. So I don't want to ask that question, does prayer change the mind of God? This is what I want to ask. When I pray to that God, does God change things on earth? Yes. Yes, he does. Prayer is a mystery. How does sovereign God do his business with faulty, finite man? I don't understand all of that. Nobody has helped me come up with a, a way to grasp that better than Paul Miller who said, life is more than logic. And if we try to figure out the mystery, we are going to lose God. So there's plenty of mystery with God, how, how all the prayers of his people work out his eternal plans. A lot of mystery. But the one thing that I know is not a mystery, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, he summons his people to partner with him in the release of his power. And when people pray, things change. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, you've loved that all your life. Call to me and I will respond. Boy, what a... I'll answer you. I hear you. I'm a prayer-hearing God, and I will respond to you. Call to me to, to do it. Like, God, change my heart. I'm an addict. Ch I love dark things. Change my heart. God, change my child's heart. God, change the hearts of my people in the city who see, who, who see no reason to glorify you today and gather with the people of God. They don't even think they're in danger. They only know they're in danger of eternal hell. God, change the hearts of millions of people that are led by, devoted to false religions, dead deities, non-living deities, non-existent deities, and they give their allegiance to those around the world. God, change my medical condition. Change my job status. Just pray and let God decide how he's going to answer in terms of change. I love the verse that Perry read at the beginning of the service. Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Do you know what that phrase means in Greek, all kinds of prayers? It means all kinds of prayers. Like, there's just no secret here. Pray about everything. Everything. Listen, there are 650 prayers that are recorded in the Bible. You can get this book. It's called All the Prayers of the Bible by some guy named Lockyer. And in the preface of the book alone, you can Google it and see the preface. 650 ways that people prayed in the Bible. And they prayed for everything. What I also love about that book is if you read the whole book, it's got 
450 instances in which God responded to his specific prayer. You were loved and led by a prayer-hearing God. So I want you to pray. And the only way that you're ever going to experience peace in this world, the only way is that if you take everything always to God in prayer instead of worrying about it. I remember Dan preached on this verse a few years ago and just absolutely milked it for all of its worth. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and asking, with thanksgiving, pray to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart. Here's my philosophy on what to pray about. If it disturbs your peace... It's worthy of prayer. Parking lot? Yep. You want a parking lot? Pray for a parking lot. You might want to combine that with a prayer of God. Wake me up 30 minutes earlier. (laughs) Next time. (laughs) He is your heavenly father. You talk to him about everything. My daughter was with me yesterday. I can't imagine telling her there's something off limits something too small, something I'm not interested in. I call her in the week, I ask her about everything she did at work. I want to know everything. Talk to me, child that I love. When we stop being ourselves with God, you are no longer in a real conversation with your Heavenly Father. Talk to Him about everything. And every conversation you have with Him puts you in the presence of perfect peace and holiness, and that'll change your life. Do you know what you need to make it in life as a believer? To make it through this world, you need peace and purity and power. If you don't have peace, you won't even have a vision for God because your mind's so worried about things. If you don't have peace, no vision. If you don't have purity, you won't even desire God. And if you don't have power, you you will not even have an effect for God. So when we pray, peace comes to our mind, purity comes to our heart, and power to our body and ministry. Pray about everything. I love how the early church got in a situation where all their peace was rattled. Peter and John had been arrested for preaching Christ in the city. Uh set free from the jail, but told, warned, don't ever preach Jesus again in this city. Imagine how that would, you know, how that would feel to us. So they went back and told the church what the authorities had said. Look at the church's response. Acts 4, 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They've got to get their peace back. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs. They're praying for miracles. That might get the city's attention. And wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And I love how Paul, how Luke included this. He said, they prayed through the holy name of Jesus. I hope you don't end your prayers fast. Father, we ask for this. I said, Jesus' name, amen. What would you say? Why don't you just slow down at the end? In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Because that's the only reason your prayer is heard. Blood from the Son of God makes your prayer acceptable to the Father in heaven. So slow down. In Jesus' name, amen. He's the taker of our prayers to the Father. And look what happened when they prayed. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I don't know if this building needs to shake. I don't know what shaking will look like in this city. But I know that God has thousands of blessings that he wants to dump, shower, saturate this city with that will come after and only after we are going to pray. And we're going to work this week. I'm going to preach on prayer one more time. And we're going to work on somehow doing a little better of coordinating some praying from all of us. Don't know how that's going to look yet. So maybe you could pray about that this city of, I mean, this, this week. Get some ideas. We want to call you back to praying together. Love how John Piper says this. God acts when we pray, and he can do more in five seconds than we can in five years. And this is not an anti-work. It's not an anti-work statement. You, do you know how hard I've worked on this? All week. Got home from the elders' retreat last night. Maybe went to my favorite charity, Chick-fil-A, and got a sandwich. <laughs> then got back at 7 and probably worked again on this. I was finished with it before the retreat, but worked on it again till midnight. This is not anti-work. This is just saying, Richard, Brian, Ronnie, work hard, but precede all of that by work, because God can make this sermon 5,000 times more effective than your work. Work hard, but bathe it in prayer so that the work is not Wasted. You can imagine, in a car, you get your car packed up, you're going to make a presentation, your car is filled with all of your AV equipment, your computer, projector, or whatever, your screen. You get a mile from your appointment, you give out a gas. You get out, man, you got to make this presentation, or you're toast. Then you get out, you start pushing your car for that mile, and you look down a side street and you see, a station, a gas station about a block and a half down. And you sort of calculate, should I keep pushing or should I go get gas in a gas can? But you decide, I'm going to keep pushing. When you could have taken the effort and the time to go down there, block and a half or two, come back, fill your car up with fuel, and you would have made it to your meeting a lot faster than pushing a car a mile. But I look out at this church today and I see a lot of people pushing. Not stopping in the morning to get fueled up by God. I'm just going to push my way through this day. Got all these problems at work, problems with my family, problems with 
finances. I'm going to push harder rather than stopping in the morning and let God fuel all these things you're pushing with prayer. Remember how this whole series started. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. God has established prayer as the means by which we receive supernatural help. And without supernatural help, we cannot do the works of God. You can't push your way through into the supernatural. You pray your way into the supernatural. Prayer is really a statement of helplessness, dependency. I have, you know what I, what I love about a, a growing church is babies. You just, they just come all the time, or they're in the, they're, they're coming. <laughs> Let's just look around and see babies, and every time you see somebody holding babies, or either parents or grandparents, and you see this little baby, the first thing you look at, a baby in a carrier, whatever, is he is helpless. And that's why Jesus said, Come to me as a child. Grow up, mature as an adult, but never leave helplessness. It's the key to prayer. When you pray, two things should be going on in your mind. I don't have control over this. God, you do have control over this. Paul Miller, one of my favorite writers in, in prayer, um, a book our staff is studying together, is, um, I like the way he talks about how prayer is, the, is what we're talking about. It's the fuel that makes everything in your day sort of line up. This is it's a three-screen quote. It all, that's the theme of his quote. Prayer first before the day gets started. Prayer is where I do my best work as a husband, dad, worker, and friend. I'm actually <clears throat> managing my life through my daily prayer time. I don't, I don't manage at the office. I manage before I get to the office. I'm shaping my heart, my work, my family, everything that's dear to me through prayer in fellowship with my Heavenly Father. I'm doing that because I don't have control over my life and the hearts and lives of those around me, but God does. So I want to close the message today by looking at a situation in the Bible where the circumstances yield, this is out of control, and one man said, God, you do have control. The story is told in Isaiah 36 and 37. The main factors that are warring in this particular instance are Assyria um, and Jerusalem. Assyria was the dominant world power at this time, present-day northern Iraq. Assyria had already, from the north, come and crushed the nation of Syria, Damascus, gone further south and crushed the northern portion of the people of God, it was called Israel. Now they were headed on south. Assyria had its sights on crushing Egypt. But they had to go through the southern land of Israel called 
Judah. Specifically, they had to capture Judah's capital, Jerusalem. So that's the setting of Assyria wants Egypt, but they got to go through Jerusalem. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, he's king of Judah in Jerusalem. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So the Assyrian army had come to the southern district and captured all the outlying fortified cities of the southern district, but they hadn't captured the innermost city yet of Jerusalem. That's one they were after. So while they were in one of these outlying areas, the city of Lachish, the Assyrian king stayed there, but he sent his field commander up to Jerusalem and said, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And he had this conversation, not with the king, but with three of the king's commanders. The field commander said to them, these are the three that heard the, the threat, tell Hezekiah, so I'm telling you something, you go tell your king. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? That means no, no power in heaven and earth can save you. There is no power that's going to work for you at this time. So give in. Come now, he says. Make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Now, this is sheer uh, taunting, uh, intimidation. He's saying, <clears throat> I'll give you 2,000 horses, but you don't even have enough men in your city that are strong enough and trained enough to even mount those horses. Even if you had horses... You don't have enough people to even do battle with me. Come make a bargain with me. Now, let me just tell you what's happening here. This is insult on top of insult. The king right now, the Assyrian army, was surrounding Jerusalem. They could have pounced on them and wiped them out, but they wanted to humiliate them and make them surrender instead of just wiping them out. It's just game playing. This is how Satan works with us. He doesn't just come and wipe us out and kill us. He puts so much pressure on us emotionally and spiritually, he wants to watch us give up. He gets more glory, Satan gets more glory by us just giving up and declaring God is not worth my trust than him just wiping us out with disease or death. That's what he's after. Oppressing you to the point that you say, I give up God. I give up on God. Isaiah 36.10 I have come to attack and destroy this land. Or have I? Sorry. Have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? No. The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. 
make peace with me and come out to me. Again, this is what your spiritual enemy tells you. It's a lie. It's what Satan tells you. This distress has come. This crisis has come because God is through with you and is now against you. That's what he says. So give up because God is done with you. And he's telling you the best thing you can do right now, this is what Satan does, the best thing you can do right now is to give up and give in to sin. Satan always makes sin the best option, look like the best option, and he always makes trusting God look like the worst option. So he's saying, give up. Give up. So at this point, the men who are hearing this, go talk to the king Tell him what's going on outside. When King Hezekiah heard this report, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth, went into the temple of the Lord, and he sent Eliakim to the prophet Isaiah. So Hezekiah the king, here's the report. says, go get me the man of God. Again, I see people sitting together, especially at the first service. I saw an entire small group sitting together. Let me tell you why I love that. Our elders retreat was all about how to try to figure out for the Lord to bring you even more and more together in realizing the benefit of going through this spiritual journey and battle together in groups, relationships, not just in and out every Sunday. Here's why. When you are at the point of unbelief and fear, you need a brother or a sister to tell that to. So they can help you believe. I read the elders last night and said, I can't wait to be prayed for today. I'm, I'm weaker than a bedridden man. P pray for me that I would be effective with the people that are coming today. What did Isaiah do? He did what any prayer partner, accountability partner, small group friends should do. Gave him a promise from God. Isaiah 37, 6. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So in Hezekiah's distress as king, he got a promise from Isaiah about the faithfulness of God. Now you probably aren't going to get one of your small group friends to give you such an exact specific word from God. You might, but probably not. But what you want from your friends, you want people pumping into you truths from the Bible about the reliability and the goodness of God when you're broken hearted. You want promises coming on your text. You want helping people to help you believe what you don't find easy to believe. And what's interesting about this, you know, this king's going to hear a report and leave you alone. It happened. You can read it this afternoon in Isaiah 37. It happened just as he said. Some Egyptian ruler uh, in the Egyptian state of a country of Ethiopia rebelled and started moving toward Assyria north. And as soon as 
the Assyrian king heard that Egypt, uh, somebody from Egypt had revolted, he withdrew all of his troops from Jerusalem. Now, but it wasn't the end of it. When the king went back to fight against this king from Ethiopia, so Assyria is leaving, he's going to go you know, put down this Egyptian uprising. When he left, while he was there, he sent a letter to Hezekiah and said, this ain't over. I'm coming back, and I'm really going to wipe you off the earth this time. So I want to tell you, the reason why I want you to be here continually and in the Word, repeatedly praying faithfully, is because your spiritual enemy is coming back. Man, I heard you guys singing, like song number two here today, that new song that the band did. Whoa. Man, it was so great. And I felt like when I was hearing it, even song number three, like I felt like, it makes you feel like I'm not going to depart from God ever till this afternoon. So you're going to get a letter from your enemy. I'm coming back. He's going to threaten you again. And that's why you need to keep praying. So when the letter came, now the letter is, I'm away right now. I'm coming. We're coming back. Verse 14, Hezekiah received that letter and from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before God. That is what God is waiting for many of you in this church to do. Because you're spending your time worrying, fretting, regurgitating all the things that are going on in your life wrong, maybe complaining to someone else, or, but you're, you're not praying about it. It's so easy to think you're praying about something because you're thinking about it all the time. Thinking is not praying. Praying is praying. This is what's on my heart, God. And I am, like Hezekiah, I'm laying out the letter before you. And I'm going to pray and not worry. Look, how, look at the God that he prays to. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He prays to a five-fold, five-fold God. Five trustworthy characteristics of God. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. First, he calls him Lord Almighty, which means the God of all the armies of heaven. Then, the God of Israel. Oh, God, you're the God who enters into relationships with sinners. You don't choose people in order to discard them. Enthroned between the cherubim, right on top of the, the box that held the Ten Commandments. Little two little cherubim, two little, little baby angels. In between these angels, the holy presence of God would descend. This is Isaiah's way of saying, or Hezekiah's way of saying, God, you're holy. You will do the right thing. Then it says, you alone are God. There's no one else to go to because there's no other gods. 
You're my only hope, God. You are my only hope. And you are God over the earth, and you have made heaven and earth, which would speak to his sovereignty. God, if you control the tides, you control billions of water evaporated every day from the ocean and coming over the land masses and dousing us with rain. If you're going to lower the sun at the end of the day and raise it again tomorrow, you're sovereign over the earth. This did not catch you by surprise. You are in control, not this intimidating problem called Sennacherib. So then he prays, give ear, Lord. Hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see and listen to all these threats from Sennacherib to ridicule the living God. Let me tell you something. When this guy prays, Lord, see, that's not like what you and I would think. Hey, God, uh, would you see something you're not presently seeing? No. When people pray like this in the Bible, that's when they're busting out of their soul and they're crying out, look at me. I am helpless. See my weakness and come rescue me. This way of praying is not to alert God. It's a way that heals you because you are really crying out with full dependency. See me, God. I got no hope this morning at Hope Point unless you help me teach. And then look how he prays in verse 20, which is the goal of all praying. Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. Why? So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Father, I want people in Spartanburg to know you're God. I want people in every college campus to know you're God. I want people in, at BMW to know that you're God. I want the UPS driver to know that you're God. I want people in Bangladesh to know you're God. People in Zambia. People in Rwanda. People in Shanghai. People in Montreal. I want all of the nations, all of the peoples to know that you're God because if they don't know that you're God and they're not worshiping you and saying thank you that you are the only God of the earth, they're going to go to hell for denying the only true and living God. So do something, God, in this city that will let people know that you are God. I talked yesterday with a couple church members dealing with pretty big disease. And they said, we believe this is worth it. We believe this is worth it. If our neighbors whom we love will see the peace of Jesus Christ in our home through this disease. Just, that's how you pray. That's how you pray. God's response. Because you've prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria... I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. This is an interesting way that God said, this is the qualifier of why I'm going to answer this prayer. Again, takes the pressure off you, not because you're good enough. I'm answering this prayer, this prayer because of 
David? What do you mean by that? This guy's been dead 300 years. But God made a promise to this guy. David, he was Israel's greatest king. David, through your family, I'm going to send the Messiah and the Savior to the world. So that in the year 2020, people in Spartanburg will have a place to go and take their sins to King Jesus. So David, Hezekiah, I'm not going to let this city be wiped out because i got to keep Israel alive because from Israel, from the family of David, is going to be born through the lineage of Mary, this one called Jesus, who's going to hang on a cross, bleed, absorb the guilt of the world into his body, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and make a promise today based on his perfect life and his powerful death and his triumphant resurrection, I can forgive you of your sin. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to let somebody wipe out my plan of bringing people to heaven. And here's how God answered the prayer. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out, put to death 185,000 troops in the Assyrian camp. Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria, returned to Nineveh, stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his son killed him with a sword exactly as Isaiah had promised. I'm going to send him back home, and when he's home safe in his homeland, that's when I'm going to take him out. Unbelievable prayer. Unbelievable answer to prayer. And why did all of this happen? Because somebody prayed. An army that could not be defeated was defeated. An enemy that could not be stopped was stopped. What looks impossible today in your life is possible tomorrow. And why did all of this happen? The text tells us, because you prayed to me. Wrap up with these two summary statements. Hezekiah saw something marvelous that would have never happened unless God worked. Equally true is God did something marvelous that would have never happened unless Hezekiah Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, thanking you that our words and our heartache is received by you. Our concerns and our needs are received by you in Jesus' name. We thank you that the power of his life, crucified and risen, resurrected life, through Jesus, my sins of last week are not stopping this prayer. My struggles with the repeated areas of failure and flaw in my life are not stopping this prayer. 
In Jesus' name, I'm praying for help for this people, these believers, and these guests. Lord, my prayer for the guest is simple. Would you show them if this is the body, the home, the family of faith that they should belong to, where they can pour their life to grow as a disciple of Christ? Would you, would you tell them, is this, is this their church home? Lord, for a guest that doesn't know you, separated by their sin and their unbelief, would you help them today say, I believe in Christ. Jesus, come in my life. Take away my sin and bring me into the family of God. I want a Savior. I want a Father in heaven. Cleanse me of sin. Fill me with the righteousness of God. I receive you, Jesus. And Father, for believers, maybe overcome with sorrow, worry, bitterness, addiction, concern for a family member, overwhelming obstacle at work, I pray for this body, God, when it will bring you glory, move heaven and earth and change their situation and bring peace and purity and power to their life. And Father, we pray for our city. We want everybody in the world to hear this message. We want everybody in the world to hear of Jesus, precious Jesus. Where the church is already growing faster than we know what to do with. But grow it more. Bring more. Out of darkness, out of lostness, out of pain, out of blindness. And bring them to know Jesus Christ as Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just stay with us as we